Trigger warning. The following program contains conversations about suicide. If you have suicidal thoughts, help is available. Call 988 for Suicide and Crisis Hotline. Beef for the honey, beef, beef for the beef for the honey, beef, beef for the. This is KSQD Santa Cruz 90.7 FM. This is Deanna Riley, and this is the Hive Poetry Collective. Today, I'm going to be chatting with Joan Kwan Glass and reading from her new book, Night Swim, just out in 2022 from Diode Editions. She is the author, also the author of three chapbooks, including If Rust Can Grow on the Moon from Milk, Cake, and Cake Pressed. 2022. She serves as Poet Laureate for Milford, Connecticut, as Editor-in-Chief for Harbor Review, and as a Brooklyn Poets Mentor. Joan's poems have been published in or are forthcoming in Poetry Northwest, Ninth Letter, Tahoma Literary Review, Prairie Schooner, Asian American Writers Workshop, The Margins, Hayden's Ferry Review, Rhino, Dialogist, and elsewhere. Welcome, Joan. Thank you so much for having me, Dion. It's a pleasure. I love reading your new book and seeing the stuff you post online and on Facebook. And I'm really happy to talk to you today about poetry in general and your new book in particular. And the way we always kick off our discussions is by looking at a poem by a poet you admire and today you brought in a poem by Laura Apoll. It's called Instruction for the Friends Who Are Sorting My Daughter's Things This Afternoon. And it's from her book, A Fine Yellow Dust. Is there anything you want to tell us about this poem before we just jump in and give it a reading? I would like to say that um, one of the things that really hit home with this piece is the way that she explores um, the experience of deciding what to keep and deciding what to give away or what to do with someone's belongings um, and the things that they leave behind. Because in my experience, um, after losing my sister and her son, who was 11 at the time, both to suicide in a short period of time. They died two months apart. One of the, there were a lot of absurd things about death in my experience, but one of them is the fact that these hum, these whole human beings with full lives and histories are suddenly gone one day. And yet the objects that they held or that they wore, or that they used, remain behind. Um, and it was very difficult to for me to determine, um, you know, what to keep, what to do with the things that I wasn't going to keep, and how do you make those choices. Um, and this poem really speaks to that feeling of not wanting to let go of anything. And you did say... Um, you did say the name of the book, but I just want to say it again. It's called A Fine Yellow Dust, and the author's name is Laura Epphole. 
Um, her last name is spelled A-P-O-L. So this is instructions for the friends who are sorting my daughter's things this afternoon. I want her coats, the new one she got for skiing, the old one she wore in the yard, the black one she wore on the photo in the rain, and the green hat and scarf she knitted in sixth grade. I want the games, clue, cribbage, backgammon, trivial pursuit. I want Yahtzee and the Rook cards too, and any score sheets with her name at the top. I want the pink hoodie with the kangaroo, her yoga mat, all the unmatched earrings she saved. I want her purses and belts, her viola and her secondhand guitar. I want her measuring spoons, her ironing board, the photo albums, her last bottle of shampoo. I want the Birkenstocks, even the ones with the worn footbeds, especially the ones with the worn footbeds. Her picnic blanket and all the yarn. Save her watercolors, her candles, her great-grandmother's sewing machine, the t-shirts she had set aside for a quilt, and her tent. I want her pillow, her stuffed elephants, her felt-tipped pens, the broken lamp she planned to fix, the doorknobs she replaced but never threw out. Don't give away her nail polish or her emery boards, or any of her rings. I want her hairbrush, the hair still caught in it, her toothbrush, her last morning. I want the sun in the window, the cats that woke and stretched beside her. I want her last phone call. God damn, all I want, let me have back. Her choice. That was Joan Kwan Glass reading a poem by Laura Apal from her book, A Fine Yellow Dust. The poem's name, instructions for the friends who are sorting my daughter's things this afternoon. Oh my gosh, after hearing this again, you read it really well, by the way. Thank you. It's such a, it's such a heart-wrenching poem and you know, um, the author I met at Seattle AWP, which is the annual writers conference, and she walked up to me at the booth where I was signing books and she said, I want you to have this. You'll know when you read it. And she just handed it to me and walked away. Oh. Um, and I just read it about six weeks ago, six or seven weeks ago, I think. Um, and I reached out to her. I didn't hear back, but I just reached out to her to let her know how moved I was by the entire collection. Um, you know, the book that I'm going to be reading from today is entirely about suicide loss. And there's this small kind of kinship of writers who write or have written books, uh, poetry collections about suicide loss. So, and there aren't that many of us, um, but when we find each other, it really, it feels like this, 
you know, it feels like kin. It just feels like a second family sort of situation because it's such a specific and unique grief experience. Mm. Yeah, grief can be really bonding. Yes. Well, you know, there's a lot that could be said about the poem, just about how devastating it is. But I feel like the level of craft in this poem, objectively, is really off the charts. The it's, entire book, the really the entire book is, is oh incredible. God. I'm going to have to get to get mm-hmm. Laura Apple from, I, we don't know how to pronounce her name. It might be Apple. It might be Apple. It it's um, Michigan State University Press. Okay. Laura Pohl, A Fine Yellow Desk. Um, but it's a list poem. And the choices of what she puts in it are, they build somehow. Yes. But right from the beginning when she says, I want her coats. And the new one she got for skiing, the old one she wore in the yard, the black one she wore on the photo in the rain and the green hat and scarf she knitted in sixth grade, like right away you go and see that she wants more than she can get. Like she just doesn't Mm. want one coat to remember her. She clearly wants an abundance. She wants everything. She wants her back. Exactly. Yeah. And the way that she ends the poem too you know, I, I want her, her choice, you know, like her choice to take her life, that that's really what it's about. It's, you know, because those objects that people leave behind, like what we're trying to hold on to, we really just want them. We just want them and their whole selves, their living selves. No object, you know, can ever take someone's place or be enough. Yeah. Yeah so strong and she has this repetition of i want i want i want i want i want i want Mm -hmm. and halfway through she breaks that repetition and says save her instead of i want she says save her and then she goes back to i want and then she starts having incomplete sentences as it Mm -hmm. gets her stuffed elephants her felt tip pans it, it builds an intensity and then she says, don't give away instead of I want, kind of breaks a pattern. Mm. And her line breaks are good. Her last morning, I want the sun line break in the window. So in other words, yes. I want the sun, which is more than what you can have, right? And- I noticed that too. That was a particularly brilliant um, enjambment. It yeah. really was. Yeah. I want her measuring spoons, her ironing board, the photo albums, her last, last bottle of shampoo. I want the Birkenstocks, even the ones with the worn footbeds, especially the ones with the warm footbeds. Yeah. yeah. Oh, really? And it's so, you know, the, those were two items that I also kept. The bottle of shampoo and a pair of my sister's shoes. I kept them they're still in a cabinet downstairs um like with the photo you know that we used at her wake and it's it's so it's interesting it's always interesting to me you know like what people hold on to like what you want to keep it's it's whatever whatever ordinary thing a lot of times 
um, was closest to the person that you lost? Well, I think the first time I became aware of how the things that we have relate to who we are, I, I think that's particularly human that we're yes. so, was that, remember that book, the things they carried about Vietnam? I remember that. Mm -hmm. Such a famous short story. It was anthologized in all the high school anthology mm -hmm. and it reading that probably probably in the 80s or the 70s or something was the first time that I really became aware that everything we have is a metaphor for who we are. So, mm. Yeah. Super powerful. The pathos and the stakes build through this poem. And, and you know, and at first, we don't know what has happened. But we know something has happened because of the of the title, Instructions for the Friends Who Are Sorting My Daughter's Things This Afternoon. So we start off with this sort of uneasy sense, and then the poem just builds. And right. Yeah. And it isn't until the last line that we get a hint that there was some choice that she made. Yeah. And a really interesting part of reading a book that has a narrative arc like this, where all of the poems are relevant and related to one another is that every time, you know, when I was reading the book, every time I would read a new poem, I would have a, maybe a deeper understanding of the poem that came before it. And then that poem might speak to a poem that is later in the book. And so I found myself going back and forth a lot between um, all of the poems and, and reading it, really reading it twice, you know, reading it first all the way through. And then the second time kind of like copying back and forth and, and experiencing, you know, that grief feeling in terms of like the narrative power of it. Mm, yeah. So it must've been really well ordered. The order must've been really there, there must've been something like sort of like an, like a good enjambment. The end of one poem kind of leaves you in a place of expectation. And then the next poem mm -hmm. provides a different slant on the one before. So I guess she really was good at ordering the poem. Yeah. Order in a book I have realized is so incredibly important. Um, and I don't know if I had ordered night swim differently, I don't know if it would have found a publisher or if it would have been as strong of a manuscript. Um, well, you let's know. jump into Night Swim because that leads me to a question or just a comment. Sure. And I thought the way you ordered this, you order it according to the stages of grief. Those yes. well-known state, what is it, Colbert, Colbert or something? The you know what? I don't even remember. Well, it's, I mean, it's almost like a so, I mean, and so many people have kind of added commentary on it and extended the yeah. stages of grief. I'm not even sure who... So you the you used those stages of grief that are so well known. They're just kind of part of our culture, almost like denial, anger, bargaining, etc. And you used those as the way you structured the book, which I think is genius. And I want to get back to that later, but I want to jump into poems because we, we've been talking a lot. So well, let me give a quick shout out okay. to the editor of this book because it was their idea. Oh. So yeah, I did not have this book ordered this way. Lynn Schmidt is was the editor on this manuscript and it was 
their suggestion. Okay. So I just had to give the shout out. I want to become their friend. Their friend. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the first one we're going to read is from the denial section. At the, so that's the first section and it's exit wound. So do you want to go ahead and read exit wound for us? Yes. Um, so this poem was one of the more difficult. I mean, all of these poems were difficult to write. Uh, but the experience in this poem um, was one of the most difficult parts uh, in terms of like describing loss. Uh, so this is called Exit Wound, um, and it is about, it's about my sister. So my nephew Frankie was 11 when he took his life, and he used my sister's loaded weapon. Um, which was unsecured in her home. And so she had an even more difficult time um, after the days, you know, and weeks following the funeral than someone even might uh, in terms of suicide loss of a child because it was with her weapon. Um, and this poem is about her refusing to leave his side the night before the wake. Um, here's Exit Wound. The night before her son's wake, my sister refused to leave the funeral home. She sat on a stool by his coffin for hours, stroking the exit wound above his left temple. The funeral director said he would not make her go, so I brought her a blanket and pillow, put my hand on her shoulder as long as she'd let me. We didn't speak. I left her still covering and uncovering him, went back to her house to lie in her bed while my mother and her church friends in the kitchen begged God to forgive him for taking his life, a life that had been God's to take. In the morning, the makeup was gone on one side of his face, revealing stitches like a gauzy cage. His glasses had blue frames just fitted weeks before. When my sister sent me pictures, I thought he looked so grown up like a small intellectual or budding poet. The mortician had to come back twice to fix where my sister had rubbed her dead child's face all night, his wound facing the wall, so that when mourners came to pay their respects, they could say goodbye to a child still intact. That was Joan Kwan Glass reading from her book, Night Swim, the, the poem Exit Wound, this is Deanna Riley. This is the Hive Poetry Collective. Well, I'm not a crier, but I cried when I read this poem. And at the time, regardless of the power of this image of the mother rubbing the dead child's face over and over, the moment that touched me the most was that sister moment. Mm. Um, 
So I brought her a blanket and pillow, put my hand on her shoulder as long as she'd let me. We didn't speak. I just, uh, I just found that so touching. You know, it's really interesting because this is one of the times that I have guilt about. I, I could not bring myself to stay there with her. Um, I just couldn't do it. I, I was, I was in a state of acute trauma as well, having just experienced it. And I wish that I could have, or that I, you know, had been willing to, or felt like I could have stayed with her that night. Um, but I really felt like I might completely lose my mind if I did that. Um, but I still think about that, you know, and kind of wish for that moment back. Mm. Wow. I don't even know what to say to that. that yeah, no, it, I mean, this, this is what I meant. I, I think earlier when I said like death is just so absurd, you know, like the, the strange choices that we have to make when we lose someone, especially when we lose someone unexpectedly, especially when we lose a child unexpectedly or a child to suicide. Um, it's, it's absolutely devastating. And yet you're forced, really forced <laughs> to make constant decisions. You know, if you're the adult in the situation that is the responsible adult um, and having to make some of these decisions, you know, I wish that I could have made some of them not in a state of trauma. It's the fog of war. Yeah. That's yeah. a really, that's a really great analogy. Yeah. I, I grew up on a ranch and there were always crazy things happening, like horses galloping and falling and slicing over their, open their chests and just a mm. lot of violence and death and things happening quickly. And my mother would always yell, keep your head. Mm. And, um, I kind of learned to do that when I was younger, but as I get older, I mean, it takes a certain kind of muscle to be able to do that. It's, it's like, um, it's not resilience. Yeah. It's, it's a kind of a strength. Um, I can't it's, say the word. But it's, it's like a, it's like a stealing you know, steal, S-T-E-E-L, yeah. a stealing of yourself. And it's, um, you know, something that also happened to me after I was diagnosed, well, not after I was, I was diagnosed with PTSD for partly for this reason, um, is that the moment that I found out that my nephew had died this way, I like immediately developed an auditory processing issue <laughs> where if there is any background noise, I can't hear what someone in front of me is saying to me. Um, and I tried to, when I tried to describe it, like to the therapists in the beginning, it felt like I was in a rubber bubble, you know, like a clear rubber bubble. So I could see that people were saying things, but I just could, it just sounded like the Charlie Brown teacher in yeah. my ear. In movies, you see that portrayed after trauma. 
that's how it was. That's how it was for me. Um, that was one of the things that happened. You just never know. And that's what, that's still something that I struggle with. And it's been six years. Whoa, God, there's so much we don't know about the brain, mm -hmm. but you know, it's an assault on the brain and there's only so much that the brain can process and the brain is just doing its best. That's right. To process that's right. the assault. I, I like the title exit wound. I realized, um, I didn't realize this when I read Ocean Vong's book, but I did realize that when I read this poem is that exit wound has a double meaning that mm -hmm. it's a wound made when someone exits mm -hmm. and it's the bullet leaving the body. So that is a really good title, but just you. once again, this image, the mortician had to come back twice to fix where my sister had rubbed her dead child's face all night, his wound facing the wall. So that when mourners came to pay their respect, they could say goodbye to a child still intact. Denial of the broken. You know, that's what we like to do when we fix the children up or when we fix people up. Is mm -hmm. It's too much for people to take. So we make, you yeah. know, that pretty picture on it. But still, I mean, the intimacy of the sisters, despite the guilt you say that you feel, mm -hmm. the intimacy of the sisters is so touching to me because... It would be an entirely different experience if there weren't love there. That is true. It, it that really, is true. And, and my, you know, after my sister took her life uh, two months after my nephew, my grief for her was so complicated um, and continues to be, you know, the grieving that I did for my nephew was not at all complicated. It was, it was complete devastation that was that is all that i felt um and when my sister took her life i was angry at her i was devastated i was confused i felt guilty it was like every you know human emotion yeah hypervigilance um, right isn't that called hypervigilance maybe yeah uh, yeah, see, I have to put a label on it. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't okay. have to think about it. Um, this is KSQD Santa Cruz 90.7 FM. Well, um, why don't we actually, why don't we skip to the end of the book? Sure. Into the last section. What is the last section called? What stage of grieving is the last? Acceptance. Acceptance. So we'll skip from denial to acceptance for a second because these things don't happen in order, right? Exactly. Um, and read this lovely poem that you told me is super popular, um, Holy Places. Okay. It's on page 71 in Night Swim by Joan Kwan Glass. This is Dion O'Reilly and this is the Hive Poetry Collective. Okay, this is Holy Places. Before your birth, I searched for God in churches and temples, lightning storms. I wandered the stacks of old libraries, read how-to guides and timeless tragedies, revering truths that were not mine. 
In your short life, I knelt beside you. We rolled Play-Doh into lopsided snowmen, stacked blocks up high and knocked them over again and again. On our sunlit floor, there were no mandalas, no baptismal prayers or vows of silence. Your laughter filled the room like an ancient lair. Every breath was an offering passed between us. In your absence, I still wake, write what I learned too late, that there is no church but that square of light where I knelt beside you. Once again, that was Joan Kwan Glass reading from her book, Night Swim, Holy Places. You know, I don't think there can be too many poems about the sacred in the everyday. Mm. I mean, I was reading some Emily Dickinson and that, you know, with a bobolink for a chorister and an orchard for a dome, just the celebration of what we have and that in this poem, I in your absence, I still wake, write what I learned too late. That there's no church but that square of light where I knelt beside you. We don't realize it at the time. Mm-hmm. So beautiful what we learned. Yeah. And these moments, you know, this poem really makes me at this point in my life also think about my own children. Um, I have an 18 year old, a daughter who's going to be 17 very soon and an 11 year old. Um, And so those days of, you know, raising young children and playing with them on the floor are over for me. And um, every time there's like a new era in my parenting journey, there's a feeling of grief that comes with that. In fact, after um, my my nephew and my sister passed away, I had a lot of dreams about my own children at younger ages. So I would dream of them as younger versions of themselves. And I would wake up and it felt like someone had died. Um, you know, I I really, there are so many different ways to grieve in the human experience and so many different reasons to grieve, you know, on the human journey, at least for this human. <laughs> and the, mind, the brain is wider than the sky. Yeah. Yeah. And I just, you know, I'm like, I, I'm never going to meet those versions of my children again. Those versions of them are gone and it feels like something to mourn. You know, at the same time that I'm celebrating new things for them and, you know, attending last year, my son's high school graduation, it was my first child to graduate high school or moving him into his dorm at college, you know, things like that. Like there's so much joy, but at the same time, I keep, (laughs) I joke a lot about how, oh, there goes my toddler learning how to drive. You know, I, (laughs) I just dropped off my toddler at his first dorm room, because that's what it feels like a lot of, you know, it's like there are these versions of them that it's hard to fully release. 
Yeah, it's like when you decide to have a baby, you don't imagine like a six-year-old man (laughs) is is your baby. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Well, the mystery and the extent of the grief in this book uh, and in our lives I'm really glad that it's put out there because, you know, there needs to be a softening toward it, Mm. you know, not fighting it. It's part of the human experience and it's mysterious. I agree with that completely. And one of the reasons I felt compelled to write this book is because I, I wanted space for my own grieving experience which I often felt like was a very lonely one um I I knew that I needed to allow myself to experience rage if I if I if I was feeling rage I knew that on days when I felt despair that I needed to be able to experience despair and that when I came to acceptance that that was okay too Um, And I had this experience through this process of people being very upset with me. And I actually lost some people in my life who were so uncomfortable with my anger um, that we had to part ways. Mm. And I make no apologies. I was hurting no one. I was not causing any damage. I was experiencing grief in the way that this human being needed to experience grief. Um, And for me, that's what I needed to do to get to, you know, over the, the mountain. There was no, you know, that happens a lot with divorce, doesn't it? Like people can't see you angry at your spouse, especially if, you know, if they liked the spouse. I think especially if you're a woman. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I think that what makes rage and grief so difficult is that they're not, they're strong and they're pure, but they're mixed with moments like we rolled Play-Doh into lopsided snowmen, stacked blocks up high and knocked them over again and again. That universal image, I do that with my grandson. Mm -hmm. It's... To have the grief mixed with the beauty of these images is so much more powerful than if if it were not, if it were just pure, you know, rage, 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 hate, hate, hate. But it's it's mixed in with what we call positive. We have these constructs, negative, positive. They're all just emotions. They're all just things we feel. And I think because I allowed myself to feel whatever came I was able to feel you know multiple emotions or see the beauty and the pain or the injustice you know see all of it and just accept take it in and try to process it on the page um you know this was real for me Let's move into the anger section of the book then, since we brought it up. Uh, There's a poem on page 21, asking for help. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good one for anger. 
Yeah, and it's interesting mm. because it's um, the way it looks on the page is a list, a numbered list, right? Of, like a how-to list. Uh, like what, if you would Google, how do you, you know, how do I find my password or something? And mm -hmm. you can like list on the help page. So asking for help is in that format. So do you want to go ahead and read that one? Yes. Um, so just a little background for this. About two weeks before my nephew took his life, he ran away. Um, he rode his bike like 12 miles uh, across town and went to a diner. And he literally sat there until someone noticed him. Um, so this is about after that took place, my sister calling me and asking me what she should do. And I, I wrote this poem about that. This is asking for help. The day after he ran away, you called me asking for advice. I gave you a list, made sure you wrote it all down. One, find him a therapist, someone he can open up to about what's going on with him, someone he can reach out to if he ever feels hopeless. Two, call the school social worker, tell her that he ran away, ask her to meet with him regularly. Three, Stop by the local Boys and Girls Club with him and see if there are any mentors available. Four, ask for a meeting with his teacher. Find out if anything has been troubling him at school. Five, sit down with him and tell him that you can see he is in pain, that you are not angry at him, that you will do whatever you can to help him. Three days later, I called you to see if you'd made progress, ask if I could help with anything, find out how Frankie was doing. I decided not to do it, you said. Which part, I asked. All of it. That was Joan Kwan Glass reading, asking for help. From her book, Night Swim, this is Deanna Riley. This is the Hive Poetry Collective. The Hive Poetry Collective also puts on events. We have readers every other month at Bookshop Santa Cruz. We get po poets from all over the country. If you're interested in attending one of these super fun readings, go to hivepoetry.org and look at our events page to see what's coming up. Okay, what I wrote on this was devastating when I read it. And because of the order of the book, we don't know this until 20 pages in that this happened. Right. And it's shocking. And and we get angry too uh, when we read it. Um, also, I wrote down a good plan. You know, I almost feel like I might put this on the blurb that goes with the podcast when I post this, because mm -hmm. I think these, this is such good advice. And the part where you say, sit down with him and tell him that you can see he is in pain, that you are not angry at him, that you'll do whatever you can to help him. That advice is good for 
anything that's coming up with a kid or a friend or anything. I, yeah. And it's so hard to do, I think, as a parent, because somehow you take the pain personally mm. and you want to defend yourself somehow. Like, yeah, I totally know what you mean. <laughs> and it's, um, I totally got it. it. It's a very difficult thing to step back from a child's pain, um, especially if they're acting out in some way. And I, I really think that being a teacher, uh, I'm a middle school teacher. So I actually teach sixth grade and my nephew was in sixth grade when he took his life. And so, you know, I have that training and that background to, um, you know, kind of triage situations with kids. Not everyone has that. Um, but, you know, my sister loved her son more than anything in the world. I mean, she has two children. She loves her children more than anything in the world. And that's why... <laughs> This didn't seem, you know, on paper, right? It just doesn't make sense. Like, why would you not get him help? And what she said to me, which I did not put in the poem, is that she didn't want him to be stigmatized. What I recognize now, because you're talking about, you know, like personalizing pain, is that it's my sister didn't want to be stigmatized. She was... It was very important to her, like it is to almost all people, for people to think that she's a good parent, um, you know, to feel that way about yourself. And in a lot of ways, my sister was a good parent, but she had her own challenges and her own struggles, um, which, you know, I won't get into, but it, it made things even more complicated for her um, in trying to decide you know, to, to do what on paper looks like and was, in my opinion, the right thing. I bet you're super, super soft and gentle with your students. Most of the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I Most was, of the time. I was a teacher for 35 years. I taught secondary. I taught a little bit of junior high, but mainly high school. And mm -hmm. I look back and I, I was one of those teachers with standards, you know, high standards. Mm -hmm. I look back and think, eh, could have kept my standards, but I also could have been a little softer. <laughs> yeah. yeah well, know. it's a it's a balance, you know, you have to find a balance with kids. Exactly. Yeah. Um th there's something about your book and many books that have a lot of the I come from the I, you know my story mm -hmm. well it's a personal story it's clearly a personal story and when we're talking about poetry in workshop we talk about poems and workshops using the term the speaker we don't say you did this in your poem or you did that we say the speaker right and we separate the writer from the persona in the poem and, um, you know, clearly that's a conceit or a tool, but it's so accepted now that I can, I mean, I can remember when it wasn't, I can remember where we had to remind people mm -hmm. not to ask personal questions. Like, why did you break up with him? Or, 
<laughs> you know, the poem's about a breakup or did you guys get together? <laughs> Things like that. Like, <laughs> we don't, <laughs> I remember when you had to remind people, it's the speaker in the poem. It's, it's not me. You know, I, I don't want to be spoken. Usually people don't want to be spoken to as if the person in the poem is indeed them. Um, and yet, even though we call the speaker, the speaker, the poems are clearly memoir like, what do you think of that conceit of the separation of the I in the poem from the author? And what do you think of its usefulness or lack of usefulness? Do you have any thoughts about that? Um, well, I think in some cases it can be useful to reference the speaker just because I always find stepping back from something or being able to compartmentalize in some way a really useful tool. Um, I find it useful in writing. I find it useful in living. <laughs> um, and, you know, being able to not make the assumption that the writer is the speaker in the poem that they're talking about themselves um, kind of opens up new worlds, I think. You know, and it also, especially if you know the person, it detaches, um, you know, what you might know about the writer from the poem itself. And you can just focus on how the poem is functioning and the craft of the poem rather than be picturing someone, because that's what I tend to do, is I'll tend to picture the writer. Um, and that's actually, I, I think, detrimental to reading a poem. Hmm. Yeah. I think for in, in, in my case, these are all, I am the speaker right. <laughs> in all of these. I'm always, I'm often the speaker in my poems, but I take liberties and I create scenarios that don't really happen because they represent the way I feel about what happened. Sure. Yeah. And that helps me. Yeah, it's just it's just a question that I had because yeah, that's why that's why this is art and not journalism. I mean, it's an art. You know, writing a poem, we we have poetic license because we're not journalists. We're not, you know, reporters at the New York Times. It's a self-portrait, not a photograph. If it's self-portrait like in paint more than it is a photograph. Right. It's sort of like a Picasso portrait. Right, right where everything's broken apart and put back together. Mm -hmm. I like that. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. I just wanted to talk to you about that a little bit. Okay. Let's look at another one. Uh, that asking for help one is super powerful. Let's go into another section and let's look in depression section. Okay. Um, stage of depression. Let's see. Depression is there's denial, anger, bargaining, and then depression. So I guess depression is part of the acceptance process. Well, acceptance, yeah. I mean, in terms of how the book is organized, acceptance is at the end. Yeah. But I, you know, sometimes I had a hard time figuring out where to place the poem. You know, I had to try to decide which stage of grief does this fit into more than another? And it was really difficult sometimes. Well, yeah, I mean, we've, <laughs> unfortunately, things are not clear-cut simple. Exactly. Yeah. So this is on page 54 of Night's Wind by Joan Kwan Class. 
Grief in Four Seasons, and we'll probably read this, and then we'll probably be about time to finish up the show, because I want a little bit of time in the end to put, if you need help. One sure, of sure. Yeah, uh, and maybe you can give me a, a link for people or whatever. We'll, we'll have that at the end. Okay. Um, this is Grief in Four Seasons. Um, and I, I wrote this actually during COVID, uh, during that brief period of time we were where we were all kind of locked in our houses. And I was teaching remotely, which is a very strange experience with middle school. Um, it's very surreal. But, you know, there were all of these, th like everything was very insular. And I was very focused on what was going on inside myself and inside my house and in the yard. Um, and I started thinking about where I was noticing that I was experiencing grief during that very insular period. This is grief in four seasons. Winter, empty bird feeder, mounds of snow sealed by ice. My son's footprints like animal tracks across the yard. Christmas video Facebook memories. Your voice, your voice. Traffic from the nearby overpass blows by like an Arctic wind. Spring, we found your Nintendo DS. You'd made avatars for all of us. I play your games in bed and dream in pixels. Outside, Flowers bloom everywhere, and though I've waited so long for them, I'm happiest in the dark, zooming in on your smiling cartoon face. Summer. Two mallards bathe in our pool. A mother skunk wobbles across the yard with her babies. Animals suddenly unafraid everything bravest before the light fades. The air is thick with gnats at dusk. I hold my breath. Fall. This September, you would have been 15. I finally put your harmonica in a drawer. My children never seem to grow tired of making s'mores. Their faces are smeared with chocolate, giddy and marshmallow feral. In the morning, I empty the fire pit. The ashes cling to everything. That was Grief in Four Seasons from Night Swim by Joan Kwan Glass. The role of deep grief in poetry. I, when I read this, I was thinking about how in every season here, grief is processed a little bit differently. And in every poem, we process grief a little bit differently. And it, <laughs> this just shows what a poetry nerd I am. I, I thought about Orpheus and how he grieved Eurydice when she was taken and raped by Hades and how he goes down to the underworld 
to deal with that grief and try to resurrect her. Mm. And he comes partway up and then he loses her again. And I feel like each one of these seasons, you you know, you kind of come partway up and then it's, you're sucked down again. And, mm. and the last one fall is probably the most redemptive. Mm. This September, you would have been 15. I finally put your harmonica in a drawer. My children never seem to grow tired of making s'mores. Their faces are smeared with chocolate, giddy and marshmallow, feral. So that is just that, you know, that feels redemptive. But then mm. in the morning, I empty the fire pit. The ashes cling to everything. So there's this beauty, but then this thin film of death kind of. That is, you know, that is the, uh, that's just the brutality of grief is in these moments that are so joyous, I suddenly remember, you know, I I had planned a trip to Paris with my daughter for her, for her 11th birthday, like a year before their deaths. And it was, a, a you know, a month after my sister died, we had, we were going to Paris and I didn't know if I could do it. I mean, it's something I had been planning for and saving for for a year and and wanted to do so badly. Um, and it was and and we went. But the entire time that I was there, I would, you know, I would have these terrible thoughts like, um, you know, neither of them will ever see Paris. <laughs> You know, or Frankie would have loved the the cruise that we took on the river, you know, where everything is lit up at night. And, you know, there's just this, um, it almost feels like there's a shadow that is kind of following me. You know, that's like what it's felt like. And the shadow has its hands like on my shoulders, you know, and is kind of like pulling me backwards in and out. Um, and it's, it's just really, it's, it's very, it's really brutal. Um, and the pain, the pain, the beauty is part of the pain, the beauty and the pain kind of, when something is really beautiful, there it makes it more beautiful, yet more painful. Somehow there's this. That's right sharpness to everything i think when you're mm -hmm. you know beauty seems more beautiful uh, and when you when you see beauty you feel more pain it it's weird how those kind of play off each other there's something comforting though in reading this book and showing the survivor the survival of the speaker i.e you <laughs> yeah I hope so. You know, that, so one of my, I had a few fears about this book, but one of them was that it would just be too much for any press to want to publish. Um, and I'm so grateful that Diode published this book. I, I think it, it was the perfect place for it for so many different reasons, but the care that they took of the book, of the manuscript, the care that they took of me um, is really unlike anything 
that I've experienced. I mean, I've, ex I've had wonderful experiences with all of my publishers um, and actually have become really close friends with one of them. Um, but this experience with this book, it just, it felt like, it really felt like we made it together. Um, and I'm really just incredibly grateful for that. Well, that aspect of the healing power of poetry that I haven't really heard of before, that your press can actually be so comforting. Uh, and They were incredible. In just managing sort of like the live ammunition of, of the book. Right. I just want to share one thing, though, when you talk about pain following you everywhere, especially in beautiful places, is... um. When I was 19, I was in a house fire and I burned off 80% of my skin, 60% of it third degree. And when I was recovering from that, I just kept forgetting that I had gone through something so brutal. I just thought I should move on with my life. And... Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's just not how it is. You don't go through something that's so broken, so much broken body, so much brokenness, and just snap out of it and be happy. I, it, regardless of what you're going through, it's not like it's a terrible thing all the time, but it, we just can't expect that. We wouldn't expect it from a dog, but somehow mm -hmm. we know that if something bad happens to a dog, we're going to be petting it. And, you know, if you if you adopt from the pound and the dog has been through something, you know that you're going to have it's that's something you're going to be dealing with with that dog for a long time. But somehow we just expect that from ourselves. I but think there's I, this there's, you know, that expectation of pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and kind of powering through things. You know, when people lose someone, unless they take an extended leave, they get maybe three days or so of bereavement time. I mean, um, yeah, there, there is this, this expectation of resilience. And, you know, I think at least for myself, I consider myself to be a very resilient person, but part of that is allowing myself to go to the depths that I need to go to, whatever those might be. And they've been different over Being these last Orpheus. several years. You have to be Orpheus, the original. <laughs> yeah. well, I love that I, analogy. I think that this book is a, a, a testament of resilience. We've got to go now, but gosh, what an amazing show. Such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for Thank coming. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. This is Deanna Riley. I've been talking to Joan Corn Glass about her book Night Swim from Diode Editions. This is KSQD, KSQD Santa Cruz 90. 0.7 FM. Thank you for tuning in.